and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. You're going to realize pretty quickly that Tim Chi is a serial entrepreneur. He loves to build, he loves to create, and he also loves to sustain success. And currently, he's the chief executive officer of The Knot Worldwide. His story with The Knot begins in 2005. After just getting married, Tim set out to make wedding planning less stressful. If you've ever been married, you can know you know that it can be quite a stressful process. Uh, certainly it was for me. It rained on our wedding day and we had an outdoor wedding. Uh, note to self or note to others, hopefully not to self, but note to others, try to stay away from an outdoor wedding. And if you are planning it, Think about a tent or some kind of coverage. If you want that story, hit me up and I'll tell you more about it. But back to Tim, who's way more interesting than I am. So he set out to make wedding planning less stressful and frustrating. And together with his co-founders, they put together 
four deaths into an empty living room in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is actually where I'm from. And they created Wedding Wire, which became a leading global vendor marketplace serving the wedding industry and helping millions of engaged couples plan, execute, and celebrate the most important day of their lives. WeddingWire grew to a thousand employees and owned leading wedding brands in North America, Europe, South America, and India. And we're going to talk about globalization and how culturally he's learned how different countries and different parts of the world operate and how he has to think about that as a CEO of a worldwide company. In 2019, Tim became the CEO of The Knot Worldwide following the merger of Exo Group Inc., which is the parent company of The Knot and Wedding Wire. Before that, Tim co-founded Blackboard in 1998. While at Blackboard, Tim pioneered many of Blackboard's flagship products and strategic initiatives, bringing technology into the classrooms of colleges, universities, and school districts across the country. During Tim's tenure at Blackboard, the company raised over $100 million in capital and was taken public on the NASDAQ in 2004. So when I say serial entrepreneur, you think about Tim's journey and he was graduating college and he co-founded Blackboard. Then he was going through the wedding process and he co-founded uh, Wedding Wire. So I sort of challenged him to say, hey, what's next? And we talk about that in this conversation today. And I think you're going to enjoy how Tim thinks about learning, growing, and cultivating a specific culture. So here is Tim Chi. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I don't think you've probably ever started any sort of interview with this in mind. So I figured let's start here. Video games. Uh, I have kids that are six and seven. They have an iPad. Uh, they're just getting to the age where they want to play video games, uh, especially my son. I know you're a gamer. And yeah. so I'm curious for you, uh, and perhaps as a parent as well, how do you lean into gaming and playing video games and get the benefits of it while also uh, ensuring that your kids are not just staring at screens all day <laughs> and actually go and interact with the world? How do you deal with that as a parent and, and how have video games enhanced your, your life and your world in some way? Oh gosh. Um, wonderful question to start. And first, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Brent. Um, yeah. So I am a, I am a self-proclaimed video gamer. I grew up playing video games are a real part of my childhood and I just really enjoyed it and something that I wanted to be able to share with my kids as well. On the complete opposite side of that, right, we're all talking about as parents screen time issues and accessibility of iPads and what age should you give your kid a phone? Um, you know, the answer is as late as humanly possible. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a reality that they sort of are a part of our kids' lives in a way that, you know, certainly when, when I growing up, they just weren't as accessible. Um, so um, to answer your question, um, I actually do try to separate the idea of video gaming time with screen time. time. And the way that I do that is video gaming time is generally done with me. And um, we, we, we don't just say, let's go play video games. I'm a, with with the kids, it's it's there's some a little bit more intentionality behind it. I will talk about a game first and why I like it. it could be Mario Kart, um, it could be Minecraft Dungeons or whatever it is, and I sort of get them interested in the mechanics and the sort of why it could be fun. 
And then there comes the fun moment where we say, okay, I'm going to order this game. And then every day it's like, did it arrive yet? Did it arrive yet? And then there's obviously the experience of playing it as well. And I always just take an opportunity. I mean, A, it's just super fun watching your kids learn new things and experience things. But within video games itself, you know, there, there are opportunities to um, teach them about what, or, or, or see them experience what it feels like to be almost to the end of a level that you've been working on for, you know, an hour and then you die and then you got to start all over again and resiliency and all that sort of stuff. So I'm just mindful as we play and have a ton of fun together of um, helping them use that as a, as a, as a means for, you know, le learning, experiencing new emotions, joy, frustration, anger, fear, et cetera, et cetera. And that's been the way that it's been sort of fun for me, but I do have to control that within the screen time you know, uh, umbrella here. We, 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 we can't sit there and play for four hours and, and be in a cave. So it's short pockets at a time, very focused, lots of fun. They look forward to it every weekend. We do no screen times during the week, only on the weekends, something to look forward to little building up of in anticipation as, as we get, get to the weekend and then, a you know, burst of it and then on to the next week. It's interesting. Cause when we were kids, you know, the parents could say to us, you're wasting your time. Like you can't do anything with this. And now these kids are looking up and they could become professional. I know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got, you've got all these different video game professional yeah. opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and it leads to maybe a broader question around parenting. You mentioned before recording that your kids swim. Um, how do you think about, you know, whether it's video games or swimming, uh, how do you think about activities and extracurriculars and the value of them from a parenting standpoint and how uh, sw like swimming and video games are very different for me. Video <laughs> games was a complete joy for me as a child. And if I was left to my own devices, I would have been on my devices. Swimming, I, I swam sideways with my eyes closed. I was awful at it. I hated it. I was terrible at it. Um, so you've got swimming, which I've worked with college swimmers it is what i call a pain sport where you know it's monotonous it's physically grueling it's mentally and emotionally it's it's a difficult challenging sport um and then you've got gaming which is more <laughs> of a creative pursuit so for your children and as you think about what they pursue how do you nurture their nature and help them find their way in both of those endeavors i uh, love that question um i mean my answer is balance right we're trying to create a sort of intentional balance around exposing them to different things. And um, you couldn't have described swimming better. And by, and by the way, as a, as a, as a non-swimmer, um, you know, this DC metro area just is like a big swimming Mecca. Um, I know nothing about it. Um, and so I did learn that it's terribly a swimming parent because at least once or twice a week, you will find me half asleep in a park somewhere at 5 AM as my oldest daughter swims for two hours uh, prior to school which I didn't know that was part of the deal at the time. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, again, it just gets back to the qualities of, of, of some of these things, I think for swimming, I mean, there's obviously the health well, and really any sport, right. There's a health, a health benefit to it, but in particular swimming, a lot of these other sports, I mean, it is about um, resiliency and, you know, and, and winning and losing and um, persistence and, you know, all of those things getting up over and over again at, five in the morning just sucks. And, uh, you know, but they get used to it. And, um, you know, one, one of the things connecting it to um, our business, um, and this was earlier on, which I know we'll talk about later, but um, we 
we have had a lot of success over time in terms of um in in different professions but let me take let me take like a sales as a profession um a, a lot of dedicated athletes do really really well in 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 many occupations i think because of that discipline of because of the team winning mentality etc just like it built some of these sports just build directly in, in feed into the career and it's super cool to see so that's that's what i'm hopeful for from for swimming for my kids as well so we can build some of those skills early on you talk about uh collaboration or being part of a team you've uh founded things with friends and and partnered uh why not just you know do your own thing like well, what about friends and partnership was appealing for you to start wedding wire I think Blackboard, you know, there was a lot of co-founders there as well. Like, what about that aspect of team has resonated with you rather than the solo uh, founder? Um, you know, I'd love to say it was super intentional, but I, I wasn't. I mean, one observation, right, is when, when we, at least in tech, when we tend to talk about or refer to these real big success stories, you know, there's a Larry and a Sergey, there's a Jobs, you know, and, and a Wozniak. So, I mean, you just sort of like sense this pattern. For me, it wasn't that intentional, but um, but I just know I'm not good at a lot of things. And, um, you know, jack of all trades, master none gets you so far when you're starting a company, but in order to, I think, really excel, um, you need to have complementary skill sets at the table and people that you work well with together. And so for Wedding Wire, I was quite intentional about it where I set out early on and said, I can't do this alone. My 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 chance of success is much better improved if I have the right partners. And um, and so, you know, what did I not know how to do well? I didn't know how to do marketing. Um, I was a mediocre coder at best on my best day, and I didn't know how to do sales. Those were my three first three co-founders, Jeff Lee and Sonny. Um, we met and we just also had the deep, deep blessing of really, really liking each other as well. And then, you know, work 15 years together side by side um, after that building this company. What's key to great partnerships? I mean, if you can get it, 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 I think everything starts with relationships, right? Because that's where trust gets built early on. And so how that felt and looked for us is we really, like I mentioned, we really, really liked each other. So um, every conversation, every decision, every tough time we went through, we were we we were all living it together. It was nobody's fault, no finger pointing. Um, you know, all for all for one, one for all, supporting each other every step of the way. Cause, you know, the, these startup experiences are real, real roller coasters, as you know. Um, and having not just one, but four people working together, sort of hand stacked, can really help you help help you get through those times. Um, so to me. Yeah, it, it, a lot of the focus early on from building the company was really on genuine, authentic relationships, people that wanted to be there and people that really liked each other. And that's one of the things that I value the most about my experience so, so far is, you know, not just working with really smart, successful people, but really coming away with a lot of friends um, through the process, which I which I think is really cool. And what gets in the way? What gets in the way of partnership and collaboration? Uh, you know, I think the opposite of sort of humility and oneness together, right? Um, for me, it shows up, you know, when you start to see people sort of covering their own hides, you know, a little bit more 
thinking solo versus team um and all that sort of gets into like this um lack of deterior deteriorating lack of trust environment and that's really my experience is that's been really hard at the early stage levels because every single person is so critical um everything you do is so critical and it's just really tough to be in an environment in a particular small environment where people aren't where, where the trust level isn't super high you mentioned stages. You've been at all these different stages of different businesses. Is there a stage that that you really love, uh, that you love to be in? Um, I know it's a little bit of a loaded question, uh, but I'm curious if there's a stage that really gets you excited and energized. Um, you know, I can point to really amazing things and the sort of the downsides of, of every stage. So I think everyone may answer it a little bit different. Um, for me, I would say the stage where um, the stage sort of right after, right after when you're, when you sort of really feel like you have your hands on the dials and product market fit is sort of there and it's like scale real fast. Um, that's an, it's an easy one. And most people would probably say that's fun, but that is a really, really fun time uh, because everything goes up into the right. Um, you know, you sort of made it over the first hump um, and um, all systems are go. You're able to sort of step on the gas. When you step on the gas, the car goes. Um, that's a really, really fun time uh, to, to, to be at. Entrepreneurship. Is that something that you knew in college that you knew from your childhood that, yeah, that's the sandbox I want to play in. Um, I, and I'm going to just go back and preface this. Like my dad is an entrepreneur and he tells these stories about, you know, getting everyone in his neighbor to shovel snow. He, he grew up in Chevy Chase. I'm not sure how lucrative of a business this was, but how he hired these kids to shovel snow. And, and then when he was in college, he'd sell bagels and get like bagels from the bagel company and then bring them <laughs> to the dorm. And so he'd like always had this hustler entrepreneurship part of him. And as I've studied other entrepreneurs, there tends to be like something from their childhood that they explored involving hustling and selling in, in some way. Uh, is there is there something that you did early on that sort of said, hey, like he's going to be interested in in entrepreneurship? Um, it, it's actually, it's it's a little bit of two tales here. I mean, my, my, my pathing, right, in terms of where my own head was, like my more structured pathing was like, I'm going to, I really interested in medicine. I want to go become a doctor. And then um, in high school, I had the pleasure of watching open heart surgery. And I was like, that's not for me. <laughs> Can't deal with that. And then college was engineering and then entrepreneurship. So that was like, it was a very circuitous route. Having said that to your point, um, it was, it, the influence was really my, my, my parents. I mean, they were small business owners who immigrated here in the seventies started their own business. We were, I saw them work really, really hard for a dollar, build something that was pretty cool. Again, in, you know, comfortable in their own space, but really carved a niche out for themselves. Um, my mom is the ideas person. She's always around saying like, why doesn't someone invent this? Why is someone this? And it all sort of in high school, my first sort of four-way entrepreneurship was, was my own car wash business with my buddy, um, which went, did not go well. But this, it was sort of like, that influence plus technology, actually, I mean, the, uh, <laughs> dating myself, but like in, in high school for me was, you know, Apple TE, the first Mac came out, 
learning how to make the little turtle, you know, go around to coat. Like that was, it was those two things sort of coming together and being able to print my own business cards on a dot matrix printer with my, with my Mac SE2. Like those were the, those were the first, first things I think that sort of got me into like, I can just do stuff on my own, um, you know, out, outside of core curriculum studies. And I really, really enjoyed that. And then that sort of led into the Blackboard, Blackboard experience. I tend to think that we put people into a box and say, you're an entrepreneur, you're an engineer, you're a doctor. And oftentimes the doctor might have some parts of them that thinks like an entrepreneur and the entrepreneur might have some parts of them that think like an engineer. Let's just use those three. And and if you want to take it beyond those three, as you think about how you think and the way you go about solving problems, like what approach do you believe you take? Is it sort of an entrepreneurial dreamy approach? Is it the doctor who may like ask questions and then say, all right, we're going to solve it. I guess an engineer kind of could think the same way, but like, how do you think, like take us inside your mind on a regular basis and uh, what parts of you tend to come out as you're running this organization as a CEO? Um, I, I tend to think in, I try to keep it super simple. Why, why didn't someone solve this problem yet that I myself am experiencing? So it's like point one, I think is um, the things that I tend to get, have gotten passionate about where I'll do, I'll try something is a very personal um, pain point or something that I can connect with internally. Um, I tend not to do or spend as much uh, headspace thinking about things that uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert in, or I just, I just can't connect with. So um, it's one of the reasons why, when I look back on my history, people joke, they're sort of like, you did something when you were in college, you did something when you got married, kids next, it's sort of like life stage entrepreneur. And I'm like, ah, there's some truth to that, right? As I experience these. So, um, so I start really simple with just why hasn't someone any done anything about this? And, and is there a better way? And I think it is lands on the dreamy side. Um, a lot of that sort of growing up in tech innovation, rocket ship land. It's like anything's possible, right? We got the magic of computers and technology behind us and um, stuff like AI now, or whatever. So why not? So a little bit of this disruptive disruption is a disruption is natural. It generally happens. This isn't, an, and then, and then you get into the more boring business stuff of like, is the market actually good, good enough? I, I always say like, I think everybody has really good ideas. I think that one of the big doctors have good ideas on the difference is entrepreneurs do something about it. Um, they're willing to, to to take a risk, um, particularly at the startup phase. That's really w- one of the differences that I I, I generally sort of gravitate to towards. Um, do you think of yourself as a risk taker? I used to. Uh, you know, the complexion has changed quite a bit. And getting back to your earlier question around stages of growth, I mean, one of the reasons why I feel so lucky is my journey has sort of really encompassed all stages of um, of a company life cycle. Um, and I just feel really fortunate to have lived through all of them from true, true startup, grind it out to, you know, global company, thousands of employees, just totally different sets of problems, uh, totally different headspace, totally different operating system, total mental model in terms of what we spend our time on. And every step of the way has been a bit of a maturation and, and a learning curve for me. And I just feel like that, 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 that's been really, really cool. So risk-taking, um, yes. I like to think bold in sort of innovation. I think, again, getting back to like every industry gets disrupted. 
Um, that's particularly in tech. We've seen that happen over and over again. So I think you got to maintain that. Um, but, you know, thinking today versus thinking as a four-person startup, very different, right? And how we spend our time and how we make bets and 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 calculate risk um, has changed a bit. There's this adage and idea that every business is solving a problem. And I've always wondered about that. <laughs> I, that feels limiting to me. It's like, well, there has to be some businesses that are not solving a problem, but they're actually doing something else differently. Do you think <laughs> businesses at their core are solving a problem? Do you use that framework or do you think about business and entrepreneurship as something different? Is it problem solving? It just seems uninspirational to me that it's just solving a problem. Like what if it's expanding us in some way that we hadn't seen um, and it may not solve a problem, but it might inspire or it might make us feel or it might make a, create an experience. I guess someone would say, well, that is solving a problem of someone yeah, I mean, needs I inspiration. Think just kind of, it's just how you characterize, how you characterize it, I think. Um, but I, I see where you're going with that. I mean, we tend to, I think a lot of businesses solving problems, you can root it in um, different types of pain points that are experienced by whoever you're trying to serve. And a lot of times in my case, it was just like, what am I feeling right now? Right. And, and then by extension, if I'm feeling this as a newly engaged couple, I'm relatively confident everyone else is feeling the same way. And so, and, 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 and then we have our problem space to work with. Um, but yeah, in general, I do, you know, every, most of the business I've come across they are trying to frame up something. And even if it is around the inspiration line or helping individuals become better people, there, there's some problem to be solved. Yeah. It's, uh, cause I always say like my clients want to work with me. They don't need to work with me. So yeah. Not- oh, that's interesting. Like they're not troubleshooting. They're not coming to me with like a specific problem that they're a jerk or they don't communicate or they don't have emotional intelligence. They usually are just like, Hey, Brian, like I'm good at what I do, but I'm not, I think I could get better and I can improve. Um, yeah. Maybe solving a, maybe problem is the problem or yeah, maybe for me. it might be solving a desire or a, or, a, or, a, or a need or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. It's something to continue to think about. Uh, but, more importantly, you all did have a problem, which is a <laughs> pandemic uh, comes and and if we could fast forward, so uh, the knot wedding wire merged together. So I think now it's called the knot, correct? And the knot worldwide. The knot the... worldwide is the umbrella. So we'll call it the knot worldwide. You're running this wedding platform, and the world shuts down. I know I was invited to weddings that just weren't happening, and we're getting postponed. Um, problem uh definite problem for a company that their their role is to help people through this process that you talk about you know in 2005 you got married and uh experienced the stressors of wedding planning um so all right we're going to try to make it a less frustrating and and stressful environment okay so here you are in you know 2020 and uh all of a sudden people are like can we get married? We're not sure. Uh, we send the invites, people book flights and hotels and they can't get their money back. Uh, okay. W- how do we handle this as a company? Like walk us through the last three years or whatever the heck it's been now, um, sure. how, you've, um, how you've handled it. So good setup because that is exactly what we were feeling at the time. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, our industry just to sort of like um, build on that point it it is the easiest way to think about how we were feeling was other 
industries like hospitality, travel, right? Because weddings, people travel to places. It is a big party. There's social social distancing, travel restrictions, um, limiting number of people that can get together. Those were all the things that weddings have, right? So this was right down the fairway. And it was a really, really difficult time for our industry. And just as a reminder, we um, we have uh, we have wedding platforms in 16 countries. So not only did we sort of navigate this in the United States, but we got to see what it felt like in Europe and in Asia and in Latin America at the same time. And let me tell you, it was the same, right? Different different people handling it different ways, but the general idea of I'm invited to this wedding or I've, or I've been planning this thing, what should I do? That was a real tough, tough thing to navigate. Tough for engaged couples, also very, very tough for the small businesses that support uh, the wedding industry as well. Um, so most of weddings, right? Super localized businesses, you have photographers, venues, these amazing creative professionals that get together to make this event really special. They rely a lot on events to be a business. And those sort of dried up uh, as well, or at least, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. So it was a tough time on both sides of, of for, for, the, for the whole industry. How did we react to it? Which was your question? Um, we sort of just took a step back and we said, look here, we, we, we don't think, we don't believe that weddings are going away, right? They just can't happen now. So when things clear up, um, there's going to be this huge pent up demand and rush back. Um, and we just need to support our industry until that moment happens. So in 2022, basically, or 2020, 2021, largest pause button ever pressed on the wedding industry. Just couldn't do it. Things started to open up again. What did we do? We were supporting our couples. Um, you know, there were lots of, there were smaller weddings that happened, giving people different ideas for the business community, helping access, you know, government stimulus money. We stepped in with our own programs as well and said, for, you know, for vendors that are really struggling, just like, don't pay us right now. It's okay. We'll get through this together. And then in 2022 was like Super Bowl of weddings. It was, I think in the US, 2.2 2 million weddings, 2.2 million weddings is average. I think it was 2.6, 2.7. And then like, it was a new set of problems. Vendors were so busy. They were like, I literally can't take on any more business. Like call me in a couple of years, right? And so we're still working through that. Most of it is cleared the system. We're almost through 2033 now, but we're still at the sort of... Um, flushing through all that pent up demand. Um, so lowest, lowest low, highest high in a matter of a couple of years. So it was quite a, quite a roller coaster ride for us. And it's interesting, uh, the former Marriott CEO who you might have interacted with, Arn, um, he had this beautiful video that he sent out. He was dying of cancer. Um, and he put out a video to his people at Marriott that I use and I share with clients all the time about how you can deliver a message with authenticity, with vulnerability, but also with truth about hard times. As you are going through that for your people as a CEO, how are you thinking about how you needed to present and what you needed to do from a leadership standpoint uh, for your people during this pause? Yep. Um, I've always used this thing. I don't know. Um, you might be familiar with it, Brian, um, called the Stockdale Paradox. Have you yep. know that story, General Stockdale? So th that's kind of the principle. And, and um, it's basically like 
you have to be real with everyone. It's sort of the idea of like realism with optimism at the same time. And, and, and so picking your words and showing up and really being authentic and truth, but also hopeful, always hopeful. Um, and, and having conviction around that is sort of the through way that we were really trying to drive through. And I was really trying to drive through in every single message and every time we talk. So you can't sugarcoat things. You can't pretend that everything's good when it's not. It's like, this is going to be really, really tough, but we will get through it. And here's how, um, and, you know, trust me. So it was really, that was the essence that for, you know, better part of a year and a half, that was the message that we really were. That was the tone, sorry, that we were. Yeah, the uh, so Sucktail Paradox is prisoner of war uh, finds that those that are just optimistic, oh, we're going to get out, yeah. you know, we're going to be good. Yay, we're going to be home for Christmas. Uh, they're, they're, they're screwed. <laughs> they're, they're yep, done, exactly. right? right. But if you're just pessimistic and you're miserable and you don't have any belief, then you're screwed as well. So you need to be real while being optimistic. And when I hear that, I actually, I'm going to write an article about the entrepreneur paradox because- to me, the entrepreneurs I've been around have this paradox as well, which is like, holy crap, our business is going to die tomorrow. <laughs> like we're going out of business. I'm going to lose all my money. I'm not going to be able to pay the mortgage or, you know, go get groceries. And like these entrepreneurs are terrified that yep. the world is going to collapse tomorrow. And they also believe be they're going to take over the world and <laughs> yeah, exactly. become a billion dollar business. Right. Exactly. Right. Well and, said. <laughs> and so I call it the entrepreneur paradox, which is is maybe and, and you're saying well said and you're not in your head so for you how do you balance that um that idea that you have like whoa what are we doing here we don't know what the hell we're doing um like i had a client say it once and i'm gonna curse so if you have kids <laughs> around you know just you know mute me earmuffs. for mute earmuffs. me for ear it for, <laughs> for a minute it's like the use of the word shit like i'm the shit i'm not shit and okay. it goes like back and forth and the entrepreneur paradox is like we're going to die tomorrow and we're going to be a rocket ship. Yeah. And, and so for you, uh, you've been in these circumstances where you're looking at the hockey stick and you're like, we are scaling. This is a billion dollar business. And then the next day you're like, wait a second, oh we can't even pay our rent. Uh, so like, how do you manage yourself in, in that as an entrepreneur and make sure that a, you're not bringing it home and B that you're keeping your own sanity and you're leading the ship in a way that is at least able to deal with the waves and the storms that might be coming your way. It is a wonderful question, and um, I think that you really just get into the the uh, heart of the mental mentality or DNA of entrepreneurship and being able to be able to hold those things simultaneously and not go crazy, right? <laughs> and, not, and not and 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 it's and it's difficult. There's a really emotional maturity that 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 gets developed over time. Um, as you see these things and, 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 and I do think it gets easier the longer you're in that mode because, you know, things then do happen and they either are bad or they're not, or they end up being in. So you, you, you start to just build more confidence, um, as things go on, but it is, it's, 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 it's tough. I mean, I always like to say, um, I like, I liked to think of myself as, um, a realist with like, slightly rose-colored glasses on everything right so that it, it it was it was less like oh my god tomorrow's gonna just like you know a billion people are just gonna sign up it's like no we have real stuff to grind towards here 
Um, there's some upside to it. Got to work really hard. But yeah, we got to be fight, fighting really, really every day and every penny counts and, you know, every minute matters and every deal we do matters. And so it really is just holding both of those side by side simultaneously. And I think that just takes that that is that is entrepreneurship. That's that's why it's sometimes not meant for everyone because it's not easy. What do you do to keep your sanity? And is there anything you do intentionally to make sure that you're healthy? Um, well, video gaming is one of my escapes. Um, and I have to say, I have tried not to bring it home, as you mentioned, but I have the real benefit. Um, and I'm so fortunate that I have my my spouse, my wife, um, was in private equity and saw a lot of deals and is my both investment committee as well as moral support when things aren't going well. And she gets it. Um, and so having someone else that you can talk to about it uh, someone that can be there to, you know, tell you the, tell you the hard things that you don't want to hear, but also tell you the good things that maybe you're not giving yourself enough credit for, I think is really important, whether that's a spouse or a friend or a mentor or something like that. Um, you know, th those people are very, very important. I think early on. Do you tend to beat yourself up or do you tend to, you know, not in the lens of, uh, the business, but in terms of yourself, do you tend to be harsh on yourself or do you tend to let things roll off and, and move, move on? I tend to let things roll off. I mean, obviously there's um, bigger mistakes. I think, it, you know, you got to take accountability for those, but I tend to, and this sort of gets into, I think how we've really felt about people and culture at our company today and, you know, modeling that across the org um, I think you just approach it as like, look, everybody is entitled to make mistakes. It really is just like, what did we learn from it? And, um, you know, for making catastrophic mistakes all the time, that's no good. But usually things are recoverable. A lot of two-way doors that we're trying out, we can just reverse something. What did we learn? And so that it's that mentality that I, I'd say mostly dominates our thinking on things of just acceptance that not everything's going to work. Um but always, always, what did we learn and, and 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 how does that help us make decisions better in the future? That gives me the comfort level um, and the, the ability to not um, s s stay in my head too, too long about decisions that didn't, didn't go our way. Is there a mistake that you've made or one of the companies you've been leading has made that transformed how you saw things and changed and like a, a big lesson that you learned? that helps you lead today in a more uh in a more profound or, or better way um lots of different sort of small to medium lessons along the way i've been really fortunate i think overall in that there hasn't been any big cataclysmic events um where we really had to retrench um but i would say i mean i guess thematically um i definitely more attuned nowadays to um, actually not trusting just my pure instincts on what other people will like. Because <laughs> um, again, I I start from a place of this this is this is a problem I connect with. Therefore, the solutions the solutioning usually is something that I can connect with as well. Um, I've just been wrong more than right, and um, and that's not to say that there's people out there that would guess right all the time. It's more learning about 
the system by which we test and experiment and sort of validate theses at scale that has given me sort of a new way of thinking about how to build good products and 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 deliver services that candidly I just wasn't really mature enough or really didn't understand that enough early on where I would like I would go I'd be happy to disappear in a hole and code for three months and then be like world here's the product come use it um I just in my times of doing this and even even with these wonderful teams that we have now I'll be like I bet that thing's gonna lose or that thing's gonna win I'm just like mostly wrong so it's, it's really hard to understand the psychology of human humanity in general right so I I tend to trust my instinct on products okay but little less than 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 I did earlier on when I was I have a clock I have a client who works in technology and he uses a phrase he says fall in love with the problem there's the problem again uh not the solution and like stay focused on the problem you think you got this masterful solution and it might work for you but it yeah. doesn't necessarily work for everyone uh, I'm great at the solution I love <laughs> Really good at it. Uh, you mentioned culture with the company, and uh, I saw a post that the Knot had completed thirty-seven thousand hours of professional development training in twenty twenty-two. Like, yeah, I know you have a lot of people, but that is a <laughs> lot of professional development training. Uh, walk us through how you think about developing people uh, at the Knot and how that uh, impacts your culture. Uh, totally. So I think it starts with. Um... I mean, the most important thing, right, is what are what are most what is most of the time being spent on by by the people, and it's interacting with other people. Like we're we're a company just of people um, that interact with you to get stuff done. And so, it cu culture wise, some of these values that we have, the principles by which you operate, it really is in, in, embodied in the leaders, the managers, et cetera, because that is the that that's the number one way where these things get felt and get experienced. Um, and then we layer in then all the support mechanisms and the things that we know our team members want from us. And one really, really strong, this, this, this training that you're pointing to, I mean, it's so evident and clear that um, one of the things that really resonates with our population is they want personal growth and career development. They want to upskill. They want to learn new things. This world is our oyster. And so whether that's business orientation or just personal growth and development, that's an area we've invested very heavily against um, training, if you will, learning and development, um, because that's what our population wants. And we think it's great that, you know, I, I always like to say, um, even I don't I don't expect that, like, we have 100 percent retention and everybody that I'm working with today is here, you know, 20 years later. We know people are going to move on and life circumstances change. But what would be great is if people that left here said, I learned something, I took something away that helped me move to that next thing, get that next job, get that next promotion, whatever it is. That to me is success. Um, and so we really are passionate about developing our team members. It not only contributes to the environment we're in now, but really I think is is, is part of what they want and helps them you know, continue in life in, in whatever journey they're on. I how you phrase that. We had Patty McCord on here and Patty worked in human resources and Netflix. And she said, and Netflix, we wanted to have people that were proud to be from Netflix, almost like you're proud to be from Cornell or you're yeah. proud to be from Tufts University. And I think that's such a cool way to think about it rather than always thinking about we're going to retain our people because it's not marriage. Like, it, you know, yeah, exactly. people people should be growing and developing and maybe they go start their own thing or maybe they have an opportunity to 
get promoted into a dream job. I mean, like, uh, I think this idea that we're going to just retain our people is silly. Whereas if we're going to grow our people, then A, our people are going to improve so that they can help us and B, they're going to improve so that they can go somewhere else. And hopefully <laughs> they'll think of us fondly and they'll bring <laughs> opportunities our way. Uh, yeah. So it, that sort of uh, dovetails nicely with them. You, as we think about people, I'm I'm thinking about two different things. One, I'm thinking about driving through Friendship Heights and seeing your logo in the middle of Chevy Chase. And for those that aren't from where we're from, Chevy Chase is not Silicon Valley. Um, and I, you know, I, I lived in San Francisco and I lived right by the ballpark in Soma, South Beach. Uh, you know, you'd see Adobe and you'd see Salesforce and then you'd see Twitter pop up and you like okay, I, I I got it. And then you go down <laughs> South an hour and you see a bunch of other tech companies. Um, so I guess it's a two-part question. I guess the I'll ask the first question rather than stack them, but uh, what's it been like growing a tech company in, in Chevy Chase? And uh, I'm sure people might've said, oh, you got to move it to New York or you got to move it even to, to Virginia where there's more technology companies. Uh, why stay where, where you locate, where, where you're, you're based and, and keep it in Chevy Chase and what have been the benefits and maybe some of the, the drawbacks of, of keeping it where you've kept it? Um, the simple answer to that is uh, it was working for us. So there wasn't an obvious reason other than some of those people that would say that stuff. It's, it's an optics thing, but like we were able to grow. We were able to hire. We weren't having people complain this is when we're all going in offices uh, people were not complaining about commute times um and again like you know without getting into traffic patterns here it turns out it's a pretty good location no matter where you are um we're finding great talent we could fill what we needed um and you know small asterisks it was close to my house so it was a short commute for me so uh, and and some of the other founders so I, there wasn't really a reason there wasn't an obvious reason to not be there. Um, so I guess good fortune, et cetera. But, um, you know, we're on top of the red line. So we're metro accessible. I mean, it just kind of worked. Um, that That's it. Um, wasn't really a lot of special sauce, special sauce to it. Yeah. And then the other question I had was you mentioned 16 countries that you're operating in. What have you learned leading a global company that has different cultures around the world? And perhaps what blind spots did you have before you started to go worldwide that now you realize like, oh, we thought we were going to just be able to do this, but it turns out that we didn't necessarily see the whole picture in oh, that gosh. country or in that culture. Yes. Um, we are still on that journey. Um, and uh, definitely, I can tell anyone that is expanding internationally, do not start with the premise that just because this is the way the Americans do it, that everybody else should behave that way. That is a recipe for disaster. Um, so, um, yeah, we, we we did take time to try to try and understand local cultures, you know, um, how people work, et cetera. And we have offices, you know, in Europe, as well as Southern America, as well as um, South America, as well as Asia as well. We're just very different, right? Um, I mean, you can all center on the work itself, but behavioral norms, um, just kind of so much stuff goes into it. And we really have been working for many, many years now at trying to find the line where consistency, um, you know, similar principles, like those are tend to easier to land, but then 
the how and when you implement it, those tend to have to get customized a lot. You have different labor regulations in different countries that you're working with, right? I mean, it's just it one 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 of the things that I think we'd all want is fairness, equity, everybody gets treated the same, but then you layer in other foreign governments with different rules and it just becomes really, really difficult to do that. So you you do everything that you can um, to do so, but learning and complying with, with with all of that as well as the culture side, yeah, is still an ongoing uh, learning process for, for, for me, for sure. Um, on the flip side, it is awesome to have such a diverse group of individuals that work because the the differences in um, how people grew up and what their experiences are, even just domestically, just I find those conversations so energy energizing because it is just a different way of thinking about things, um, different way of thinking about how do you go to market in different countries for marketing launches, et cetera. It's just really, really neat. And that's one of the really fun things about being in different countries. Over a thousand people in 16 different countries. How do you stay connected to these people? Um, well, certainly, you know, pre-COVID, um, so we're, we're nearly, we're, I think we're a little over 2,000 now. Um, Pre-COVID, I was traveling a lot. I really believe in, you know, forming connections, getting back to the founding story and just connecting with folks and seeing what was going on on the ground. I think that was the best way to do it. Um, we all went on pause for a while. I'm getting back to traveling now. But um, a lot of interaction um, on a regular basis. So we used to do, you know, quarterly meetings, et cetera, where we virtually get together and we, you know, talk to the team. Now it's monthly town halls, quick hitters. Um, we just feel like in this day and age, um, everything seems so transactional over Zoom, particularly for business type stuff. We need to just make room just to have Q&A time. You know, we call them town halls, just any topics that are on people's mind. Like just don't let the absence of information sit in people's heads where then they just make up their own story about what's going on. So we're trying to be really active and transparent and more frequent with communications just to keep people feeling connected to the rhythm of the business. Um, but I got to tell you, like, yeah, nothing. I haven't found anything yet that substitutes that in-person time as well. So it just means that myself and the leadership team are getting back on the road and, you know, making sure that we can spend time in person with our with our teams. Yeah, it's interesting because you have this background in technology and you started our conversation today by talking about your children and the phone and saying, we're going to keep it from them as long as we possibly can. And I think about my childhood, I was coming of age where high school kids were starting to get cell phones and I was the last of my friends to get a cell phone. And then I was at a high school graduation party and the dad who got his son a phone like freshman year of high school and I got mine at my senior year of high school graduation and was giving my dad crap because he, he wouldn't get me a phone. I finally got my phone. I'm there day one. And the guy decides to throw me in the pool with my phone <laughs> oh, no. and, and my phone is now toast. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I think about technology and how it's evolved since then and how integrated it is in our world. And, you know, we haven't even talked about Blackboard, which you co-founded in 1998. Um, and I think about education and you're familiar with ed education technology, I'm curious about where are we going um, and artificial intelligence and the future of education and um, like from your vantage point and with your experience, like 
how are you feeling about the future of education and, and also technology as, as we see it? Um, I mean, I think it's amazing what is, what is going on. I mean, just like my barometer is the stuff that my kids know now <laughs> compared to what I knew and what I was doing at those equivalent ages is like some order of magnitude more, right? Their understanding of of, of things and I yeah, they don't have that. to go to a little encyclopedia open it up no they get they don't have to do that so um clearly to me and that's a very positive thing I mean not get, get sort of like get getting out of like the the idea of the institution of education and has knowledge as as a thing um and the ability to learn and um and and whether that's formal academic training as you progress through um middle school and high school, or just like, gosh, man, I can fix a lot more things around my house now when I just YouTube <laughs> how to do it. Right. Um, that's a really super cool thing in, in my mind. And so I'm sort of just generally bullish on the idea that um, access to information and knowledge is, is, a, is, is a good thing for the world. Um, the AI comment is a super interesting one though, because yeah, I don't, I mean, yeah, I, and I, now I now I jump into if I'm a faculty member or a high school, like how do I know how to help a student? And if if what I'm getting is really their stuff now, I, I and I don't, I haven't, I'm not close to it as well. I've been out of the tech space for like two decades, but um, there must be a lot of chatter and 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 discussions and maybe even interviews and folks, but uh, going on about like what to do, what to do about that. Um, I don't have it. I don't really have an answer yet, but it's, it's, it's a thing. Yeah. Or well, it's going to be. A thing, so, I mean, I, I went to the Aspen ideas festival and the artificial intelligence perspectives ranged from like, it's the end of the world and it's the yeah. next nuclear bomb yeah. to um, we've always figured it out. We'll figure out how to make it work to somewhere in the middle, which is the Stockdale paradox, yeah. probably, <laughs> you know, Tim Chi's way of thinking about it, which is like, Hey, this is a big deal. We probably need to put some guardrails around it. And like we did not do with social media. Right. And we need to think about who gets access to what and how we can make sure that it's, it's done in a strategic way. And I see you nodding your head. So give us your perspective on that as well. No, I think that's the right way. And that's certainly the approach that we've taken here internally around um, at our company and AI as well. Like we're really bullish on the opportunities it has, but even just down to like, forget about what we're going to try to create. And we have some stuff shipping coming up soon here for the wedding, wedding industry, but even just internal use. Um, I think most companies are, are, are going through this, line of questioning of like, wow, there's some really cool productivity tools for engineers that make them a lot more productive. Should I shove all my code into OpenAI's or, you know, whatever these things are? And how do I know that I'm not going to get something bad that's actually trademarked from someone else and so on and so forth? So there's a lot of just practical implications. And I think the word that you used is the one that we hear the most and you're using is guardrails. That that seems to be the um, thing that is at least coming through for us is just how do you responsibly try to le leverage this in a, in a, in a calibrated way right now. Um, and, and sort of wait and see, right. Where, where things go versus being on the bleeding edge and just going in all in on it. So it is this, that is very powerful there. This is a tide shift. There's going to be some great things about it, but let's be realistic about what it does today and, and, and try and step our way into it. When I think about guardrails or shifts or changes, I think about, I have a lot of clients who are business owners 
who are constantly debating whether or not they acquire or whether or not they exit or whether or not they merge. And you went through this, this big event and experience where, you know, you found wedding wire with your, your partners. Um, and now you're, you're merging with the knot. And so from an advice standpoint, I'm curious, like what advice would you give business owners who might be looking to sell, acquire, or merge, and what you've learned from going through that experience and and seeing it from multiple angles at this point? Um, I think advice would be start start as we said earlier, start with the problem statement. What what are we trying to solve for here? Um, you know, typically in the sell process, right? If it's the sell route, it's I'm tired or there's a big opportunity or some inbound came in. For the merge process, it's generally like competitive, you know, orientation driven um, for acquiring. It's just the reverse. So but I'd start I'd start with the problem you're trying to solve solve for as well um, and really be sharp minded about this. I mean, all, all of the we've done a lot of M&A um, in our history. Um, you know, we're pretty, I think, uh, I'd say, you know, we spend a lot of time underwriting everything. And what is the thesis? What do we hope to accomplish? six months after the deal is done, is it tracking to what we thought it was? You know, people have to sign up. We know there's real work involved in making things happen. Um, it's often not uh, most of the work. Uh, so so I, I don't know if you've heard this, but like a, a small deal and a big deal and a, and a huge deal, let's say you're going to you know buy a company and you're going to spend a couple million dollars, or you're going to buy a company for a couple billion dollars. Candidly, it's like about the same amount of work <laughs> because a lot of the work comes in people integration. Um, it's all of the, it's not the systems stuff. It is in culture integration. It's creating norms, you know, bringing people in, convincing them to stay, retention, you know, changing a go-to-market, whatever. That's the hard work in all of this stuff. So just think, th think very carefully about what you're trying to solve for and then make sure that you plan ahead. Cause it's never, in my experience, it's, it's, they've generally just always been a lot more work than, um, that, that then you start out thinking thinking how they might go. How is the culture different at the knot from wedding wire from blackboard? You've had these experiences. Like, what's different about the culture today than it was when you set out to build blackboard or wedding wire? Um, you know, interestingly, the I'll use the the wedding wire exo group um, not merger as as a great example. Um, if you, I think if you were an employee at either company pre us getting together, you would have actually probably described the cultures um, a little bit differently, in, in, not in a good or bad way, just, you know, and the way that shows up a little bit more is in um, norms, right? Meeting norms, you know, kind of like just the, the behavioral stuff. Um, and what I, what I've learned though, um, was an experience was when we actually put the companies together, I had in my head, oh my gosh, we're going to have to undergo this big sort of bringing everyone together, merging two cultures. Um, that's going to be tough. What I learned, and it's a bit of a nuanced point, but one that I think really I lived through was the the norms, which I think tends to, so culture sort of sits there as a, as a broad-based thing. Norms is kind of how it shows up daily. The values of each company were actually quite similar under way, way, way under the hood, right? We 
want to prioritize our users first. We um, just sort of like behave. We have a, a, a value that has always carried through to do the right thing. It's like, it kind of doesn't matter whatever our North Star is. We always behave that way, even at the expense of money. Those things were actually quite aligned. And so that made the integration of cultures a lot easier because you had a, you, you could center around values and then rebuild up into norms and how that shows up. And that, so long story short, <clears throat> um, you know, my experience was the culture integration ended up being easier than I had set it, set it to because the underlying value system was very similar. So I say that um, for those listening of just like, there's more, expo there's more, I think there's more to than just like, what does it feel like on a day-to-day -day basis? If you're just in a room with someone, you're like, Ooh, they're all, you know, very quiet or, you know, kind of rude or whatever it is, or very forthright. You really got to get down to the values system when you're really evaluating, um, you know, how two different companies are going to fit, fit well together or not. Um, so that was a new sort of learning for me coming out of this. So much of what you talked about today, and it's probably because I'm also guiding the conversation, but I'd imagine it's because of what you value as well. Relationships, humans, uh, the psychology of running a business. Your background is in engineering, uh, you know, engineering management. Uh, what have you done in your journey? We talked about learning and development for employees and management uh, at the knot. What have you done that's really helped you grow and develop as a leader? Um, number one, I do try to be very self-reflective about things and sort of always just in my own mental model, always learning, right? And never sort of stuck in the mud on anything. Um, I think that's helped me be able to progress through many stages and, and evolve as the company has needed me. Um, number two, I would say I actually have, I found a lot of value in coaches, various stages for various reasons. Um, and it's a lot of kind of the stuff we're talking about here today. And I know, you know, you, 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 you this is like your area expertise. So appreciate the choir here, but like, um, they just help pull out the things that are swirling in your head and help you make sense of them. Um, and then very importantly for me, there's always an accountability factor, some way, shape or form that comes behind it, that then pushes you into your, out of your comfort zone to get it done. That has been a really important part of my growth um, as well, because otherwise it's that you can be as self-reflective as you will, but doing it is always the hard part I've found. Um, there are a lot of people that are very different than I am. This is just like sort of tailored towards me. Um, and I do need those partners along. And that could be a coach. That could be my business partner. That could be my wife or whatever. Just saying like, got just got to go do this, right? My investors have been super supportive as well. They're another ones, another group that I lean on. My board, I lean on as well. So um, my personal development has really come from other people who I trust, who I build relationships with, pushing me forward um, and helping me see things that um, I might recognize, but I might not act on and, 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 and really pushing me forward. That's probably sort of the right disposition and then the, 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 the desire to want to have someone push you. Um, those have been probably the two ingredients that have helped me keep going. <laughs> And you mentioned earlier the stages have inspired you intentionally or unintentionally. You know, then with Blackboard, it's colleges and universities. And you're you're getting married, and all right, we're gonna set out to get in the wedding industry. 
And I'm thinking, I'm like, all right, well, parenting, maybe grandparenting. <laughs> uh, there could be a grandparent uh, technology that that Tim <laughs> creates 20 years from now or whenever exactly. that happens. But uh, what is driving you? What is motivating you? You know, you mentioned before we started recording Dan Pink's uh, work and he wrote a, a wonderful book called Drive. Uh, for you, like, what is driving you? What's motivating you day to day or even... If for a long, from a long-term perspective, like where does your motivation come from? I, I love two things. I love that I'm, I've had the good fortune of being in industries that um, kind of almost everyone or most people will experience in their lives at some point and being contributing into those experiences, right? Academic learning you know, I, I still love it today. People are like, oh, Blackboard, I use that. <laughs> you know, that's like a fun moment for me. Um, and weddings as well, too. You know, people get married and, you know, you have, you're wearing your knot or your wedding wire hat around on an air, in an airport. Someone's like, I use that for my honeymoon. You know, those are really cool feelings. And those really motivate me a lot. I'd say the end, the, the, the sort of like extension of that second thing is, gosh, wouldn't it be cool if one day my kids used Blackboard and the knot or wedding wire? you know, to get married. Like to me, that that would be super, like like a really, really cool feeling of something that I had a part in a hand in creating. So that's what drives me. Do you care about legacy? Um, not not personal legacy, um, for sure. Actually, for those that know me, I'm actually quite like I'm not a limelight spotlight person at all. I'd love to sit in the back of the room and let everyone else take the credit. Um, I do like the idea of making impact whether not not my name doesn't be affiliated with it i'm very comfortable knowing that i just had a role and played played a played played a small role in making that happen and again yeah if one day my kids are the ones that can can use that that'll be a really great moment that's cool i think that's a beautiful place for us to close i look forward to the grandpa technology that you create or <laughs> the grandparent technology down the road yeah. Um, you can call me. We'll, we'll see if I'm there yet. I'm not yeah. sure. I will. You might be a little ahead of me, um, but we'll see what happens on that front. Um, Tim, I know you're on LinkedIn uh, at Timothy G. If people want to follow along there, uh, where are other places that people can follow along, whether it's uh, the not worldwide uh, social media, uh, where's the best place to direct them to, or if there's something else you want to give attention to and promote, uh, now is the time where you can just shout out just about anything. Oh, no. I mean, if you know anyone getting married, The Knot or Wedding Wire here in the U.S., or if you just visit thenotww.com, that's our corporate homepage. It lists all of our brands, which include baby brands um, as well. We on the bump. Um, so anyone for anyone going through any life stage um, celebrations, uh, we're here to serve. Um, so thank you so much. Yeah. And we are going to get right to work on the grandparent uh, technology to get <laughs> rolled up underneath it. Underneath that. Well, ready. I'll get the, I'll get the spot ready for the logo. Awesome. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then LinkedIn also at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Tim, I know you're up the street. Hopefully we uh, run into each other at a farmer's market or, um, you know, somewhere in Bethesda or DC or Chevy Chase. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I definitely am more attuned nowadays to um, 
actually not trusting just my pure instincts on what other people will like. Because <laughs> um, again, I I start from a place of this this is this is a problem I connect with. Therefore, the solutions the solutioning usually is something that I can connect with as well. Um, I've just been wrong more than right, and um, and that's not to say that there's people out there that would guess right all the time. It's more learning about the system by which we test and experiment and sort of validate theses at scale that has given me sort of a new way of thinking about how to build good products.